Welcome to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right, welcome everybody to the uh, Old Grad Podcast. Uh, today is June 23rd, right? And it's episode 19 uh, of the Old Grad Podcast. And tonight our guest is Matt Lewis, Company A1. Matt, you there? I'm here. Number Ooh. 19. Ready to rock. Number 19. Number 19. So uh, uh, happy to have you here on the podcast. I'm sure it will be. I mean, listen, you, you're actually a podcast expert because you've been on quite a few podcasts yourself with, uh, with your recent book and um, some of the uh, content that you're looking to spread out into the world. So I know that, uh, you know, you're no, uh, this, this ain't your first rodeo. Well, putting my toe in the water. Uh, we have quite a few classmates who've written books and are uh, experts in the podcast world as well. So I'm kind of following in their footsteps. But yeah, uh, not certainly not the first time. So where, where are you living now? Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, which is home. Uh, but, you know, obviously been all around the country uh, for military, for corporate, what have you. Moved back when I joined Deloitte about 15 years ago. Um, my oldest son was born in Milwaukee when I was up there with GE. But, uh, moved down here about a, a year after that. So we, we've been here. About 15 years or so. How long were you in Milwaukee for? Uh, Milwaukee was just a couple years. Prior to that was Dallas for a couple years. And uh, we've been all over. Milwaukee was with uh, GE's called Medical Systems at the time. Now it's known as GE Healthcare. Uh, Dallas was GE uh, Aviation or Aircraft Engines, as it was called at the time. Worked at an overhaul shop on Love Field there in Dallas. Back to Cincinnati prior to that when I was with Procter & Gamble, and that was all out of uh, grad school and, and the military prior to that. Awesome. Yeah, so you have been you got out right at the five-year mark, right, when we were uh, young captains or promotable lieutenants at least? I did, yeah, exactly right. Five-year mark. Uh, stayed in the reserves, did another 16 or so. Uh, partly serving at the Pentagon in a desk ops, uh, but always – uh, working for the admissions office at the academy is what's called a MALO, a military academy liaison officer, essentially. Uh, Y'all uh, probably worked with one when you got into the academy or leading up to the academy. It was that officer that helped you put together your admissions packet, uh, did your interview, made sure you got everything turned in on time, uh, may or may not have been part of the nominating committee with your congressmen, senators, uh, Anyway, I did, did that role for 16 years and just, just had a ball working for the admissions office. And some of our classmates who uh, toured through there, Mark West was one, and I got to work with him for a few years while he was in that role. So, he, he was an admissions uh, officer? He was, yeah. Oh, uh, I forget what the, what the tour of duty there is, but two or three years he, he did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was a Melo as well for a couple of years, and... Um, I just uh, couldn't keep up with, uh, I was not doing, I felt like I was not doing the job, the service that it needed to be done. I was always running around trying to interview these kids and uh, it was great. I mean, it was a great experience being able to see 
little bit behind the curtain of how the whole admissions process goes on. I mean, what I would always tell these kids first and foremost is that I have to tell you right now, the interview that we're about to have has like zero consequence on your being admitted or not. You know, like I'm here more as a, to make sure you know what you're getting into if you are accepted, to talk to you about my experience, talk to you about West Point, but, you know, just, you know, take the stress out of the, out of the situation right now. Cause you know, even if I, even if I gave you a glowing review, it's not going to get you in. And if I bombed, you know, if I gave you a terrible review, they're going to probably have somebody else review you because they're not going to believe just one person's, you know, um, advice on something like that. So that was yeah, what I was would kind of my approach. Is, yeah, it was kind of my approach as well. I viewed it as an opportunity to educate the young man or young woman and uh, turn it into a bit of an education session. If they got far enough along the admissions process, I wanted them to go in with eyes wide open. And my you know, philosophy was, the, the nation uh, needed them as future leaders more than any time in the recent past. And, you know, failure on my part would be someone that goes there, finds it isn't what they thought it would be, and then dropped out for whatever the reason that, that forever claims a slot that someone else would have killed to have. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of my approach. The other reason I like the role is it was fairly mobile. When I was doing all my moves around the country, you know, I could, land in a, a different zip code as we called it back in the day and plug right into the, the local group and pick it right back up. So it wasn't like I had to, to change uh, units, if you will. Yeah. You're actually reminding me of a little bit of the politics of it a little, here in New Jersey, because uh, I live like kind of in central New Jersey and there's a pretty high number of candidates that are interested to go to the Academy. Um, and so um but because I was a low man on the, po- the totem pole and guys have been doing it for years, they're like, oh, you're going to have South Jersey. So I'd have to drive like, you know, an hour to an hour and a half to go interview some kids. So that was another part of the problem for me is I just couldn't logistically continue to support it the way that it was set up, even though I was like right in central New Jersey. So, and these guys were all gunning for, you know, because you get points for doing it, right? Like you, you get the, you, you, you're not getting paid, but you're getting retirement points. And so if you're trying to like pot, build up your retirement, it was helpful for that but it was a great experience um, yeah that's right it, yeah it's an unpaid role uh you get your points so many points get you good years so many good years you can pull out a reserve pension which i did yeah did you but go back to west people, you went back to west point like every three or four years right for like training and stuff yeah but i meant from just training but you know, of course i'd be up there for other things too um but yeah uh, the other eye-opening thing, you know, you're able to get into high schools and interface with some of these guidance counselors and whatnot, and just the, the lack of knowledge that folks at that level had about service academies and what opportunity they presented was just mind-boggling to me. Uh, so I kind of took it as, uh, as part of my role to educate them as well. It gave me a, uh, an initial eye, an early eye, I guess, into the true civil-military gap that I write about in, in my book that you mentioned, uh, which is ever growing. Uh, we can circle back on that topic. But yeah, we're going to dig into that. Definitely want to dig into that further. I was thinking about it. I mean, let's talk just a second about it and then we'll, we'll go back to the book, but the civ military divide is a real, real growing thing. I mean, when you look at the, the number of people that are serving in our armed forces today, there's so, such so many less people because we are, Leverage with technology in a far more lethal force than we were, you know, decades ago. And, um, and so consequently, there are less people who are serving. And then you've got the fact that so many of, 
our military are actually the offspring of former military members. So you've got families. This is like the family business. And so it's, you know, it's not uncommon that you don't know anybody who has served in the military. And so, and that, that's, we're seeing this more and more in the corporate world as well, right? That's part of what your book is about. Yeah. I mean, it's also a volunteer force. There is no compulsory service in, in the country. And, you know, to, to your point, I mean, the, the, the corporate world, just to put some statistics on it, since 1980, so think of it as within a single generation, the percentage of uh, leaders in, call it the Fortune 1000, that has any military experience whatsoever has dropped more than 90%. All right? So, and to, to give you some further numbers, you know, take that same Fortune 1000. What do you think the percentage is in the C-suite? Those are chief, you know, ex-officers uh, within those organizations. The, the percentage of, of those that has any military background is about 2.5% today and if you expand it to include all board members it's still less than five percent so if, if you flip that around if i'm a veteran come out of the service there's a 95 percent chance that the person i'm speaking to across the desk has no idea who i am what i've done uh, what i can do for them so it's, it's a daunting challenge that our veterans have um, coming into the real world today it's part of the reason why I took on a challenge of writing the book to help out. So I want to, I want to pause for a second just to recall why it is that we're doing this podcast and the whole purpose of this. And, and we've got nine, we've got nine people, nine classmates that are dialed in right now listening. So I saw Anthony DeToto, Alex Rogers, uh, uh, Brian Zwiggy, Terry Rice is out there. Um, I can't see, I can't break this up to see the other names, but you know, you guys are happy. You, it'd be happy if you guys just um, put any questions or comments into the comment box for Matt and I to talk about, and we'll uh, we'll definitely respond to those because I got it. I got it lit up here on my computer. But the purpose of our podcast is to first of all continue to cultivate the relationships among our classmates. It is to call attention to our class gift, uh, which is uh, the. $1.5 million donation to the Cyber Institute at, um, at West Point to, be, to endow it with a chair. Uh, we also want to be able to remember our fallen classmates. And finally, we want to be able to recognize the accomplishments of our classmates and also where necessary to lift each other up. And so on that point about calling attention to the accomplishments of our classmates, I don't know if you saw that Paul Smolchak finished his 90-mile uh, paddle, paddle uh, board uh, event of two weeks ago or a week ago on Father's Day. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, he can, and he came in that's fourth awesome. place overall, and he came in first place for his age group and first place for military. And uh, wow, he went from like not knowing if he could ever finish to like finishing like number four overall. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, well, I like to think I keep in fairly decent shape. I can't do those things anymore. My body's breaking down on me. Yeah, so, kudos to Paul. So what do you do to stay in shape? What 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 what's your what's your uh, technique? What's your workout like? Well, for for a while there in the military, shortly after the military, I, was, I took the running marathons. But I soon found out that uh, the good Lord didn't want former offensive linemen running marathons. Uh, blew out hips and knees and whatnot. So you know, I just I alternate between lifting weights at various 
times doing elliptical or the kind of cardio. Uh, P90X just cycling through uh, different workouts to him in there. So, you know, I did that. The work. I did P90X twice, like like two full, like committed ninety day things. It definitely, it definitely gets you in good shape. It gets a little boring after a while, but it's it definitely is a good, great workout. Yeah, there's some good workouts in there. How many marathons did yeah. you run? Uh, I ran a couple. Ran a, Chicago. A couple, as in two. <laughs> yeah, more. you got it. Uh, good uh, Chicago and so what? Sure, sorry. Short story in a marathon. I ran Chicago 95. I finished under four. Good for and you. Then I ran, ran Marine Corps uh, 98. I, I finished well enough. Um, it was like 340. I was just off the pace to qualify for Boston. Wow. That became my new goal. And as I was training for that, that's when everything went haywire with my joints and hips. And just couldn't do it anymore. So gave up the marathon. <laughs> I saw Richie Sheridan. He ran the uh, Boston Marathon, and uh, you know he's not a uh, he's not a small guy. He's a you know, hockey player, and you know he's he's got in shape and ran a marathon. And good for him. I saw a post he wrote. He goes, you know, he did a blood test. He said, you know, as as suspected, zero uh, percent Ethiopian, as uh, <laughs> <laughs> as demonstrated by my marathon. You know, I ran I yeah, ran Marine Corps. I ran Marine Corps, and I promised myself I would never do it again, and I've kept that promise. I've only do one. One and done, baby. Yeah. That's a great race. It's a great venue. If anyone can serve a marathon, they, they do it up really well there in D.C. Yeah. I am signed up to run the Army 10-Miler this year again. I did it last year. It's, it's you know, that's like the kind of, like, enough of a thing that you can you can train for. It's not so, so hard, but at least it's hard enough you got to train for it. So I'm probably going to do that yeah, again. That mostly I do anymore is a 5K. I've, I've ran the, the DAV 5K, Disabled American Veterans 5K, the last few years. Mm. That's about all I do. Yeah. As much as my body will withstand. Well, um, back on the topic of – oh, we got Rob Dill on the line. Weeds! Rob is my – he's my company mate. I love I love Rob Rob Dill. He's on the line too. So, uh, uh, But – so um, – uh, on on that topic of congratulating people, we should also call attention to our two classmates who retired in the last two days that I know of. Anyway, maybe there's some others, but uh, Colonel John Leffers uh, retired after uh, 28 years of uh, of esteemed service, and also uh, Colonel Rick Burney. So thank you to both of you. Duty shall be done. Thank you for leading the way and continuing to uh, put one foot in front of the other in service of our country. So that's that's awesome. Nicely done, gentlemen. Congrats. So Rick, Rick is Rick's a doc. Rick is I, I don't know what happens if he just basically just walks out walks out one day as a you know in uniform walks in the next day you know not in a uniform. I think he I think that might be the case. My uncle was an army doc and he left he left one day and then turned back and did the same job the next day after his retirement. I don't know, I'm not sure how that's going to work for Rick, but. It's really good, depending on especially uh, yeah. or do the same thing in the real world. My, my wife's a doc, but has nothing to do with the military. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wonder how, like, I mean, obviously, we, we, we'll talk about this further because you, you looked at this in the book, too. But, you know, you've got these retiring senior officers, like, you know, 05, 06s, some of whom have, like, these direct portable specialties, like being a doctor or a lawyer, you know, and then some of them are, are not, right? And so your book, your focus of your book is predominantly on that second group, right? The people that were trying to translate their military experience into the civilian sector. 
Yeah, for sure. My, the scope, as, as I characterize my little catchphrase, is corporals to colonels. So mm-hmm. if you look at the, 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 the curve, if you will, uh, of people in the trickle and the service, you know, folks that are flag level officers or, you know, lower level enlisted, call it E3 and below, the, the variability and the issues that they face is, you know, I don't address their problems. That's too much. But within the shock group, corporals to colonels, I think the process for which I advocate in the book is applicable and uh, can do a much better job than, or I should say, in concert with what they're, they're currently getting out of uh, transition GPS, SFL TAP, and all the other support they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me more about your personal situation. You got three kids, right? So, what what are their ages and and sexes, and what do they do? Yeah, married. My wife uh, Michelle's a physician, as I mentioned, internal medicine. Um, works here in Cincinnati uh, about three four days a week. Three boys. The uh, oldest is fifteen, going on sixteen. Itching to to drive. You, Starts that education process here in a day or two. Um, I know many of our classmates have kids that age and older, so you know what I'm experiencing right yep, now. Yeah, I do. He's uh, running cross country, uh, front shop discus to track, uh, and doing real well in school. Uh, and uh, my twin boys, uh, they'll be starting fifth grade this year, and they do baseball and track. Uh, basketball are kind of their sports and I, I coach I, I try to coach uh, as much as most of their teams or as many as I can uh, I help coach baseball um, track for the, the throws and shot and disc I help coach that when my oldest is playing flag football I coach that too so lots going on at this stage as many of you know uh, so there's, there's never a dull moment lots of logistics and and whatnot at home so my son, my son's also learning to drive. They do that at age 16 here in New Jersey and uh, trying to convince him he's, he's got to look over his right hand shoulder before he changes lanes, you know, and he's like, uh, you know, I put my <laughs> blinker on. Don't they know to move out of my way? I'm like, well, not always, you know, you definitely, definitely need to be, you know, you got to basically expect everybody's an idiot out there, you know, and then that, that's a good baseline assumption and you know, everybody's an idiot. And from there you can kind of go forward. So it was my son's yeah. 18 and a half, almost more than 18 and a half. And he still hasn't gotten his license yet as his permit did the test. And everything. yeah, some of these kids aren't into getting a license. My no. kids are all about getting a license. They no. want that freedom. man. We I, were, I mean, yeah. you can, I know we were 17 too. years old. We had our license, but you hear that all the time. Like, Oh, my kid's like eligible to get his license, but he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Rideshare. Although, my, well, that's true. Cause like Uber and stuff like that. Cause my son up at college, you know, he's got the uh, Uber app mm-hmm. and I, you know, we had an extra car and, and I was asking him if he wanted to bring it up to college. He goes up to college. He goes up to. He's in college in, in, up in Boston. He's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I, you know, I got the, I got the T that goes into the city. I got Uber. He has no desire to have a car up there. Yeah. But he doesn't like about the Uber thing is that I get to see because on the family account, I get to see these Uber oh, the rides at like six o'clock in the morning yeah. back from you know Wellesley College yeah. or like, whatever his his uh, various antics. But he's a pretty responsible kid. So, so that's a pretty big shock group. You got, I mean, uh, uh, like a spread between those two, right? So you got you got fifteen, and you got, I guess that's not that much. Ten, they're five years apart. Ten going on, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. It was it was tough. Uh, it is that those twins were a, a 
product of some effort. I'll just say that because uh, I was uh, working for Deloitte and on the road an awful lot, and it was just uh, difficult to bring them around. But mm-hmm. uh, we have succeeded eventually. That's wonderful. That's one. You know, your wife. What, what kind of a doctor is your wife? Uh, internal medicine. Uh, so the, the way I tend to describe it is. It, you take your kid to a pediatrician and they would refer you to anything more difficult than they couldn't handle. She's essentially the same role, but for adults. Mm-hmm. So the, so, I mean, does she have like normal hours? A lot of these docs are doing like rotations in hospitals and all that kind of stuff. Like does she end up having to do like those kind of crazy hours or is it pretty predictable? Uh, for now it's pretty predictable. Uh, over the years it's, it's very dependent on what particular role she had, what health system, but, She's gotten to a point and with enough tenure that she can call, you know, certain shots and get her preferences for days of the week. So it, it, it works out. I would imagine that, you know, given the fact that, you know, you got two, you know, pretty rocking careers between the two of you, it's it's been hard to kind of like manage like the handoffs here and there, right? Could like sporting events or like extracurricular stuff or like who's going to get, who's going to, Who's going to be at this event or gets so, so-and-so a ride? How do you guys manage all that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, you know, we certainly didn't come into the marriage with the communication skills we have now. That, that took a lot of learning and practice. And, uh, you know, we sit down once a week and synchronize calendars, at, at least for the next month out. And who's going to be where, when, and take Jack or Nick or Will where they got to be for a particular time of day or what have you. So, we just we talk a lot and share schedules and normally you know ninety nine percent of the time that it addresses things but every once in a while things fall through we do have help we have a uh, you know I, don't know, I, I guess I call her nanny um, that helps out we have a person that helps clean the house uh, are they every week do they live in there with you or no 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 we're, we're not she she helps out. Um, in the summer is obviously more because the kids are out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, during the, the school week, she'll just make sure the kids, uh, you know, get off the bus and uh, she'll have dinner on the table when we get home. So that that helps a ton. But that, you know, it also takes a, a chunk out of what you bring it home. You just got to figure that out. Yeah. So you and your wife, her, what's her name again? Michelle. Michelle. So you guys yeah. go way, way back, like back to high school. Yeah, yeah. Truth is, we're, we're two percenters. Two percenters. Uh, so, so let's go back. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. So, like thinking about the arc of the podcast. So we're gonna, we've been generally keeping this this kind of chronology or this kind of format as we talk about the here and now. We go all the way back to the beginning. We take you through West Point, the Army, and then back up to present time. And we're gonna spend some time talking about the book as well and your and your consulting work. So. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to pre nineteen eighty seven. You and Michelle, you, you, did you go to the same high school? Were you like, did you, did you take her to the prom? I mean, what what, what was the story? We, we did do prom, and we went to separate high schools. Uh, I was at the the all boy Catholic high school. She was at the all girl at Catholic high school. Uh, one of those deals. Uh, so that that's a deal there. A lot of uh, you know over the years, it wasn't a consistent thing or. It was an on again, off again thing. That, uh, you know, kicked in and stayed fairly consistent um, after graduation from the academy. So oh, that, so during that was, you took some breaks during during the um, during the time during West Point. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, they were, <laughs> yeah, it's at that point in our lives. That's, sounds, that's a, kind of a little bit of a sinister <laughs> laugh. It's kind of a sinister laugh that you just had there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's called 2% for a reason, right? Right. Yeah, I know. Of course, yeah. I, well, Pete A said that like uh, he's in a two, he was in a two percent club, but they got back together like years later, like after the army. Like so, they dated in high school. They did a little bit at West Point, then they took a break, and then they got back to and then he and Debbie, you know, got back together and goes. It goes. If we had stayed together that whole time, she would actually be she would be sainted at this point if she if she could stay with me during that that time period. So that that was his that's his uh, perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah, there were a few breaks here and there, but yeah, I'm certainly not alone. Um, just off the top of my head, some company mates, Ronnie Mal comes to mind. Ron Mal, yeah, I thought the same thing too. He, because he, I went to OBC with that guy. What a good dude! What a great guy, Ron Mal is. Um, but right, didn't great. he? Extraordinaire, yeah. Yeah, I want to hear about that. But um, did he? So did he get married? Right, he wasn't married at OBC when I was there. He had just been married, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's right. Um, see, Dan Shackleton, I think, is another one. They're two percenter company mate, Doctor Dan. Yeah, Doctor Dan, you got it. Uh, I'm trying to think who else off the top of my head. I'm sure I'm missing something, but yeah. So Those company mates. So we so were you the same year group? So you both graduated at the same same time? Yeah. Yeah. Both eighty seven. Uh, she went to bowling green undergrad. Uh met a company mate, John Bricky, had a girlfriend fiance in the same geographic area at the time, so he and I would make kind of cross country trips, uh, heading back to that uh part of the country whenever we had a break and Usually it's me driving. It's one instance, inevitably, you know, that kind of a latitude, you, especially in the wintertime, you hit these uh, blizzards and snowstorms. We ran into a few of them. I remember one time I drove off the road, and uh, there happened to be a, a tow truck right nearby and pulled me out. And I, the, the trip, which should have taken you know, 10 hours at the most, took well over 16, and what was a three-day weekend, I, I mean, we whittled it down to just a few hours of being able to spend some time together. But, yeah, we made a few of those trips. And he's from Ohio, too, right, John Bricky? Yeah, he's from Toledo. I wonder how this works. I, I, so I'm going to interview um, Mark Beeger coming up here in a couple weeks. So here you got two kids, both from Ohio, both white dudes, you know, <laughs> like in the same company, both in A1. Like, how does that yeah. work? How, like, wh- where's the geographic you know, or like, is there any kind of like thought around geographic dispersion? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned to Toto, he's a, a white dude from Toledo as well. He's online. He's an but, A4 though, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, but yeah, there, I forget the other podcast that some, one of the earlier podcasts talked about the algorithm that, yeah. that the admissions has, but yeah, there definitely is one. I've never seen it. I don't quite know how it works. I think Mark West could educate us on it. But because uh, I often, as a plebe in A1 sitting there wondering how in the hell did I end up here? Well, it's obviously a product of that algorithm. Yeah, I want to know. You know what I specifically think about with my class, with my, well, 
another thing that's interesting was that Anthony Noto said that the prepsters are just dis- are distributed by alphabetical order, which is really bizarre. And I thought huh. about it. I was like, so we had Bourne and Baxter, and we had Romano and Potter, like P and R and B and B. So who are the prepsters in your company? Do you remember? Uh, Tony Davenport. So that kind of. Dave, no, Dave Alley was—he uh, was a citadel guy. That Tony may have been it, but Tony no. left after every company has like three or four. So, Delulu was—was he one? Dugan? No, I don't think so. Capless? No, no. Uh, oh, Tanona, Joey Tanona. Tanona, yeah, Grant Huston too. Oh, yeah, so th- those guys weren't next to each other in in the names. I don't know. So, uh, but what I think about is like our four sister F one classmates. You know, um, Libby Boggs and Steph Southern, and Julie uh, Woods and Sharon Crane. They were very very similar. Like they they were both they they were all academically like studs, right? They didn't have any problems. They, none of them were athletes in terms of being core squad athletes. Um, they're all white. Like, how does that happen? That Like, they're all basically cut from a very similar mold, right? Like, we didn't yeah. have any, any people of color that were women. We didn't have any athletes that are women. And that's pretty common, you know? So, I, obviously, that wasn't not part of the algorithm. So, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't know why I'm so intrigued by this, but I, I find it, I find it interesting that the way the academy kind of breaks that out. So, um, so anyway, so you, you guys, she goes off to Bowling Green. You go off to West Point. You kind of go on, on again, off again as as cadets. What were, what were some of your like on again moments? Did, did she come to like Yearling Winter Weekend, or she come to Five Hundredth Night, or Ring Weekend, or what? Blue uh, Parent Weekend. She came to that. She came to Five Hundredth Night. Uh, What's the one yuckier? She didn't make that one. Yearling Winter Weekend. Yep. No, she didn't do that one. That was. You're, that was an off that, off period. Yeah, off period. And that that that, that weekend was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Toto's on. I think he he, he can relate. Uh, and yeah, so five hundred nine cal year, and she was there ring weekend. Uh, that, that was a fun weekend, crazy weekend, but. Uh, yeah, and then graduation, of course. So, yeah, she made up a few times. So when you show up and they, you find out that you're an A1, do you know the story of, like, the the, the storied uh, past of A1, of being, like, this super hard-charging, like, strict company? Yeah, no, I mean, not a clue. I mean, I, I don't come from a military family. I, I didn't know A from I, one from nine, or whatever. Um you know, backgrounds, very middle class, oldest of six kids. You know, my, my dad was a firefighter, worked two, three side jobs at a time to keep food on the table, coached all of our teams. Mom was a homemaker. You know, I played football, baseball, track, and, you know, worked hard in school. But, uh, no, uh, had, had had no clue uh, what, what I was into, but I very quickly discovered <laughs> it was something special. 
Yeah. Hey, but as a side, are your parents still around? Is they still living? Uh, Mom is. Yeah, I just had her over for dinner tonight. Uh, Dad passed away back in 2013. Mm -hmm. Uh, Had a coma thing and his cancer in his stomach. Mm, Yeah, sorry. Uh, Relatively early, 69. He must have been super proud of you. His son going to West Point, being a firefighter, and all that. I'm sure. Yeah, Dad was a force of nature, and, and not just me. Uh, one of my brothers, he, he graduated in 94, he's been 94, married one of his classmates. So, yeah, Dad, Dad was very proud. Of all, so there's, all th- there's three of you Lewis uh, grads, huh? Yeah. What's your brother yeah. doing these days? Uh, Nick lives in New Hampshire, works for BAE, as does his wife. Uh, they've got a couple kids, and just loving life up in the up in the Northeast. We get up there periodically, and uh, they live in a wonderful setting overlooking the lake, and it, it's a great little retreat to have there. I didn't realize you had a brother that went there. So he was a plebe. What, what company was he in as a plebe? Uh, C three and D three, because they, you know, I think we were one of the last, if not the last, to not <laughs> shuffle. And he started out in C three, and I think he ended up in D three. So our, our classmates that were in C3 uh, knew of it. Uh, Paul Begalka, uh, Chuck Lapellis uh, is on C3. Chuck Lapellis, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So they know my brother. Yeah. So you show up, you're an A1, and they say, "Hey, by the way, you know, football stud, and you know, from Ohio, and you know, you know, your your humble your humble roots. Guess what? You're in like the hardest company in in the Corps of Cadets, and if you don't." If you don't get your shit together, it's going to be be straight or be gone, right? That that was that was the lingo that they told you. That was it. Yeah, and the funny thing about the the company motto, yeah, back then I thought nothing of it. I mean, it, it stood for um, you know it, a standard of excellence, and it was expected that you upheld it or you'd be gone. Um, and it it wasn't literally until I got out, I was in grad school when the, the that phrase that turned up to potentially mean something else. Uh, and I forget how it came up. I was in, in grad school just talking about the military and mottos, I guess. And that, that phrase came up and I said, I mentioned it, be straight to be gone. And this person who's nothing about the military just kind of stared at me for a minute and said, is that a gay thing? <laughs> it was completely blindsided. I hadn't even considered it before in my life. And I just thought, huh. And lo and behold, uh, you know, perhaps just a sign of the time, it was shortly after that when uh, whoever made the decision, the administration, uh, it, it was no longer the company motto. Um, it's not anymore? They, they don't say that anymore? No, uh, no, no. They, they haven't said it in quite a few years. So, I'm trying to remember what the current one is. It's all American. Is that what it is? I, yeah. So I, I remember, because... You know, we, I was an F1, so we'd ha- occasionally have to deliver, when we were plebes, like mail and laundry, whatever, to regimental hallway. And to get there, you had to go through A1, which is like this gauntlet, right? Because they would just fire you up like crazy. And and yeah. if I remember right, you made people ping down the middle of the hallway, right? Yeah, so it, it, plebe year, we were in... Joe's looking at me. Hold on. I, I explain what ping is. Joe, Joe's like, what the hell does ping mean? Ping means so totally when, you, when you're a freshman, you have to walk like 120 steps a minute. Like you're basically like 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 pinging off the wall, oh, pinging off the wall. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, and you have to look forward. You can't like military bearing. Like 
And so A1 was notorious for having like this really bizarre way that you had to walk through their hallways right. that you wouldn't know about. And then they would just look for some like outsider to come in and they would just, it would be like, just like, you know, moths to a flame. Like all these upperclassmen would just come to you and just like haze the shit out of you because <laughs> they knew that they had an outsider. They had like, you know, yeah. like a, so that, that's what you guys used to do, right? Yeah, well, he painted a good picture there. Uh, the, the building we were in was Persian Barracks, Flea Beer, on, on one of the ends. And the, the pinging pattern in that building, or at least <laughs> the pinging pattern they, they made us maintain, was unlike any other barracks. It, it was utterly unique. And if you weren't a party to the building, you easily were, were found out because you didn't know how to ping. You would go in, and there was a stairwell for upperclassmen. There was a, a separate stairwell for for plebe. And you, the, the first thing you could do, uh, if you had to do, is go downstairs uh, on the, the stairwell for the plebe before going upstairs. And there were only certain doors you could use, and it was always the more difficult one to to get into. Go figure. And to to Jamie's point. The building itself was structured unlike the others. There were uh, little corners and abutments coming out from the walls. Even if it would have been six inches sticking out from the wall, you know they'd make you to square each of those corners. So it it, it was a bear. Uh, even as a, a member there, knowing you had to get around uh, just to get up, and you know it was four stories tall, of the same height as say Braley Barracks right next door with the six stories and I mean just think of Colin Bennett's or what have you and trying to run down from the, the fourth floor there trying to get out the formation on time uh, so yeah it was unique and it, if you didn't do it to a T uh, a class would catch you in a heartbeat and if you were like an outsider coming in, they would just come, they come at you. Like they, they just, cause they didn't know, they may not have known who the plebes were, but they could figure it out by the ones that didn't know how to ping in that, in that building. And I remember. Yeah. Rem- we yeah, quickly got around. If, <laughs> and you know, you as, cause they did a lot of academic projects and teams and nobody would want to come into your barracks to, to do the projects. You were always going somewhere else to, to Oh yeah. To do- you would come to your building. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to go near there. So yeah. I so I got the I got the illustrious job of being the head mail head laundry carrier during Reorgi Week, and like the, the, this is when you first come back from basic training, Joe, and like you're trying to figure out these duties as like a fourth classman, like you're like the the low man on the totem pole. And I remember this one upperclassman coming to me because I was a heat magnet. People would always like this like the haze me or whatever. I, just, I have that the kind of look or just would bring in like the heat and uh, said to me, Schleck, you are the head mail carrier or the head laundry carrier. No one has survived head mail care, head laundry carrying duties through Reorgi week. Every single year that kid has not been able to survive and has left the Academy. So you, you're being run out of here. Like, you, you know, you should take a note here. Like somebody's, somebody has it out for you. So we have this laundry that's got to get delivered to regimental hallway. And it's like, you know, there's like minutes left before like call to quarters or something. And something's got to get delivered to this female firsties room. And I look to my wonderful 
best friend, one of my best friends, Steph Southern, Steph Southern, Steph Southern delay. And I'm like, Steph, you got to deliver this thing. You got to take this down to A1. So she's gone. She's like <laughs> off the grid. She's, she, she's, she's gone for like an hour. Right. Like, have you seen Steph? What's going on? Steph? Steph comes back and she, it looks, she is less like, she's like hyper She's like, I, I, I'm never coming back. I'm, I'm never going back there again. I'm never going back to A1 again because they just hazed her like unmercifully. And so then, so well, this, well, go ahead. Uh, finish your story because I got one that builds on this. Now well, I'm going to tell you. So, so then what our um, very uh, innovative and uh, um, creative uh, classmates, uh, female cadet classmates thought about, uh, Julie Wood was when they figured this out. They figured out that if you are pinging an A1 with a box of tampons, no one's going to give you shit. <laughs> so it was like shark repellent. So they would they would carry a, bo- a box of tampons into A1 in like w- with whatever they were carrying, and they felt like that was going to be the thing that was going to keep them, like keep the keep the sharks away. That was a shark repellent box of tampons <laughs> and it worked it worked apparently it worked i heard about this in the dominican republic just a few weeks ago or a few months ago when i was down there with with all with all of them they were telling stories about uh, you know back in the day and that was what that was the shark repellent was a box of tampons i don't think it worked for a guy to carry them but it would right. definitely work for right. for for a female cadet so. oh. wow well, all right so this story doesn't involve tampons but all it right. involves laundry and it made much as the reaction of uh steph Southern. i mean it, People within our company would get the same reaction to, to upperclassmen, and so I'll I'll dime out uh, Joey Tanona and Brian Melton here. They were roommates second semester, and uh, they they had a roommate. They had a room. I think it was on the second floor, purging. They they found it had a little secret compartment in it where they could hide stuff, and rather than you know risk uh, the, the flaming that would go on in delivering mail or laundry, they they took uh, stuffing things that would come to their room in this side little compartment. And we, we gave it a nickname. It was the time bomb because eventually this thing was going to be found out. And what it did, it, you know, the, the bomb would go off. So they got away with it for several weeks. But at some point, I don't know if it was during a Sammy, but someone, some upperclassmen came in and uh, uncovered this thing. And there were literally, you know, weeks of laundry <laughs> Upper class couldn't figure out <laughs> where they gone. If they sent this stuff out and it didn't come back, that mail that we were expecting that they didn't get, and I, I forget what they ended up getting for it or walking. But uh, oh my god, time bomb story. The yeah. time bomb. So we've had quite a few other people have have chimed in here on this, and there's a lot of questions about your book. So we're going to definitely get to that. So I just want to just recognize we got Sean Sean Prickett, um, uh, Paul Eno. Totes, as I said before, Keener Gill, Rob Dill, Matt Pazvogel, Dave Peak, Doug McCormick. Um, a lot of questions on your book. We're gonna get to we're gonna get to the topics of the book. There's some questions that uh, Paulino is also asking about the economics of the book, which is my question too. Uh, before, so why don't we just why don't we deal with that one real quick, and then we can we'll go back to you know the antics of, of cadets or whatever. But economics writing a book. Is not is not particularly lucrative to write a book, right? No, <laughs> for sure. You mentioned Doug's on, and uh, you know we've had many conversations through my experience. 
the, the dirty little secret in the publishing world is the, the, the author is the, the one that probably makes the, the least cut, if you will, uh, the, the price of a book. Whatever it is you pay for a book, I think the price on mine is $27.99, and I'm sure discounted at, at various retailers. But, you know, the, the publisher, the, the agent, uh, everyone else that's part of the process gets it. The author ends up realizing, you know, something in the single-digit percentages. So uh, if you want to make, uh, you know, authorship a, a lucrative or a, you know, some sort of a career, it's what you do with the book, whether it's advising or speaking or whatever it is you, you choose to, to parlay the book into. You're not going to, unless you're a John Grisham or a Stephen King type person that will parlay it into film, uh, you know, you, you're not going to make money off the book. Did you get an advance on this book? I did. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't terrible. And same thing, the, the bigger your name, the, the larger the advance. The other thing, the advance is just that. It's a loan. The publisher is going to, uh, to get it back, you're going to pay it back through the, the royalties. That, uh, yeah, you got to earn in. Gonna, That's what Ted, Ted Russ said, earn in. So, like, his break even was like 10,000 copies, I think he said. So, like, you know, he got a big advance. And so. He's got to sell 10,000 copies before he starts getting the next dollar of uh, royalty, the way it works. Yeah, but yeah we, exactly right. We have at least, that I know of, six classmates who have written books. Um, Mark Beach has written at least one book, and I think you know he writes for Sports Illustrated. He's, you know, that's his career. Um, Doug yeah. McCormick, Bill Hecker, the late Bill Hecker, our, our um, deceased and fallen classmate. Also another deceased fallen classmate, uh, Shannon Beebe wrote a book. Um, you wrote a book and Ted Russ That's six that I know of. Yep. Yep. I think Mark's coming out with another one. Um, I think Ted's working on another one. And you're working on another one too. It, true. Yeah. True. What a, uh, what, a, what, what an amazing, uh, feat of our class. Yeah. It, it's, 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 a, anyone that's ever done it can tell you it's, it's a tough putt. Um, people told me as I was getting started, if you knew how much work was involved, you wouldn't start writing with you know, I got thick enough skin and thick enough skull that I just kept at it. Yeah. But it, it, it's a ton of work, believe me. So we got a lot of questions about the contents of the book, too, about transition. So we are going to definitely make time for that uh, toward the end of the podcast. But uh, we got, you know, several classmates that are in the midst of transitioning right now. And I think that um, having having your perspective on things like, you know, what to think think about, money, purpose, amount of relaxation, time with family, all those kind of things are things we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about. But let's, let's go back to, to the cadet years again and, and talk a little bit more about that, and then we'll move into the Army, and we'll eventually get back to present day. Um, so, you know, going back to, your, uh, to your, your time at West Point, you, so you, A1's got a general officer, at least one general officer, right? Um, general Rick Angle is, uh, was, was your former roommate, right? Yeah, Rick's an old roommate. Um, uh, Dave Hodney, I'll count Dave Hodney as an A1 grad. Uh, another former roommate, he's a BG as well. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of retired old birds. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll just rattle off some names. Dave Horan, uh, John Bricky, Martha Vandrill, uh, let's see, Yi Hang. Uh, let's see. The retired colonels. Dave Horan. I think that's I think that's it. Hmm. Uh, Eric Patterson, Dave Valley, retired Army. I don't know if they made 06 or not. 
right. Yeah. And it is interesting too. I mean, I, I see, I can see the uh, the titles of people, and I don't quite know if they're in the reserves or or active duty, but there is definitely not a um, there. There is a there is a uh, quite a bit of variability of by company of how many people served a full career in the military versus did not. Like if you look at A4 and if you look at B2 and maybe A1, there's a lot of career army officers and other companies do not have anywhere near that many, you know? So I, I there's, you know, g- going back to that formula, that sort of West Point formula that probably is uh, some, one of the things that they look at probably is like what went, you know, what makes somebody serve? And not that that's not that not serving is a terrible thing because, you know, I mean, obviously West Point's, primary primary mission is to create officers for leadership in the in the army but they also create leaders in the country and so that's a um that's that's also a a very great and worthy purpose um so uh any uh any particular stories ring out to you when you think think of those guys when i think of the a1 crew yeah um, well we mentioned Ronnie Mao earlier. I'll, I'll embarrass Ronnie, but he's heard this story a million times. So, uh, Ronnie was, he, he gotten up late one day and, uh, he, he was so rushed in getting dressed that he skipped, uh, the necessity of putting on socks. And as he's standing there looking down, um, at his feet, he thinks that no one can notice because he can't see it. <laughs> so he goes pinging out. Uh, to to formation that day, and uh, you know anybody else can see it, but he can't. And it's obvious when you're you should be wearing black socks, but he's not as a white guy. And he, he was very quickly found out. And uh, you can imagine in an A one environment how people just took to that. And uh, you know he he hasn't stopped hearing about that story for, for years. Um, and, and who knows what he, he got out of that in terms of hours, but uh, that was a fun one. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Makes me think of Brian Sharp. Brian Sharp first. I mean, F, we weren't quite as strack as A1, so our, our story is a little bit more about not having socks. Brian, Brian Sharp used to go down to formation in the wintertime without even having a shirt on, like underneath his, like he would just roll out of bed, throw on his, uh, throw on his overcoat, and go down to formation without having not shaven or anything and uh and he would basically um when they said sick call fall out he would step out and he would go back up to the into the uh into the barracks and shave and get ready for breakfast and go to breakfast late but he would make make formation on time and there was this one this one time where the oc came in to the that headquarters platoon where we were when we were firsties and he was there unshaven without a shirt on you know shoes look like chocolate bars and they're like open ranks, you know, and uh, there's Brian Sharp. He, fortunately, he only got busted for not being shaven. You know, the guy didn't realize that he didn't even have a shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So he only got busted. He, he only got like whatever, like eight demerits for not being shaven in breakfast formation. Shit. The guy, if the guy had just gone a little further, we'd realize, he, you know, the guy doesn't even have a shirt on. So Brian yeah. Sharp living on the edge. I love that guy. Sharp, he was part of my overseas Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah, arm, fellow armor guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we we had a crazy class. It was the I don't know how it worked for other branches, but in armor, there was 
you could have went early and only taken 30 days leave, or you could have taken the full up 60 days and then then went. And I was part of the crew that maxed out their leave and, and started. And lo and behold, you know, everybody else that liked to have a good time fell into that class and maxed out their leave as well. Uh, but Johnny Cook is who I roomed with then. Uh, Sharpo, uh, you're talking earlier, uh, some of the other guys that were in there, uh, Pat Lynch, Harris Morris, uh, uh, but uh, just an incredibly fun crew. How about Jim fun. Montgomery? Was he in that group too? Yeah, Monty was in there too. That's right. Chris Barden, probably right. Chris, yep, yep, he was there. Chris Barden and Brian Sharp were roommates at Kansas in Kansas together. They got some. They got some crazy stories of of being in Kansas. So, I'll bet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, tension story with these guys. There's the infamous you know, party barn, the actual uh, weekend before graduation, when a good many of our classmates ended up graduating late. Um, Robbie Kale was certainly part of that. Brian Melton. So uh, we were some of the lucky few that didn't get burned coming back. But uh, as we all know, several did. You get, you know. Matt, you got like a little bit of feedback on your side, I think. Like, I don't know if it's a microphone or something you got. With there's a little bit of like clicking noise or something. Okay. I don't know if it's his hands free, if he's on speakerphone or in your piece. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, it sounds better now. So I don't know if you're moving around or something, but yeah. Okay. Sorry but, about that. Yeah. No. No. No worries. Yeah. That was. Uh, and then I ended up. So I ended up going back down there. I forget how this worked, but Jim Montgomery. So I I ended up going to Fort Knox after Ranger School because my girlfriend lived in Cincinnati, and I was I went down to I went down to to go see those guys for the Kentucky Derby. So that was like, uh, and that, that I think uh, Lynch Mob was there, and Jim Montgomery, and a bunch of other guys, because those guys got to do something else. They went to something like maybe like the was there like. Uh, what was the course that you go to where you learn how to be a, uh, the BMO course? They went to the BMO course, so they ended up not going to Ranger School yeah. right away. So they went to the BMO course, and then they were going to Elite Ranger School or something. So I was I was there with all those guys. That was a good time. Yeah, yeah. Charlie Costanza, Randy Chris. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a good bunch of dudes. Yeah, we we were at the uh, Kentucky Derby, and we were just obliterated, shit faced. And I had just gone out of Ranger School, so I was like. 30 pounds later than I was normally. So like I was even more shit faced and they were, um, they were bungee jumping off the top of a crane and I did not do it. Like I was just, like, I just kind of said, I, I just feel like I don't want to do this, you know? And then the very next day that crane, the, the thing snapped the, uh, I like it wouldn't necessarily snap with me, but the next day, like it snapped the, uh, the, the person miraculously was not really badly injured, but um, I'm glad I didn't do it. Yep, funny so, how that works. Uh, so then, you know, one of my other roommates uh, at, at Knox is Steve Havel. Steve Havel. Great <laughs> Korea days. Yeah, Steve, so Steve uh, was my Steve was my chingo downrange in Korea. So Steve, I got many Steve Havel stories, and you do too. So you were at, at Knox with him, right? Yeah, so he's an engineer guy. Yeah, but <laughs> I think you were, and he, he did his advanced course at, at Knox. I don't know why, but he was looking for a roommate at the time. And uh, my my brother, actually, I think he had uh, 
moved out. Uh, I think he was assigned to Carson. So I had a, a spare bedroom. And uh, yeah, Were you married? Uh, yeah, but my wife was finishing medical school and starting a residency. So we, we lived apart three of our first five years. Uh, yeah. So Steve was like the third wheel. It was like, like me, like you, me, and Dupree, <laughs> like the movie. <laughs> he, was, he was Dupree. <laughs> That's one way I put it, but yeah. it, as I did, it, it allowed me to extend my bachelor's days with, with Abel because, uh, as you know, he's good for that. Yeah. Uh, what, one quick story I'll tell about about Steve. So, uh, you know, he's down in the advanced course, and uh, it, it just so happened that the, the Playboy Playmate of the Year was in the midst of doing her tour around the country and was at the PX, and I don't know where I had read this, but uh I, I saw it as an opportunity and I, I went and i got clearance from my battalion commander i said hey you know sir i'm gonna bring her down the, the motor pool and take her for a ride on my tank and he's like oh lewis you're bullshit and i'm like no sir i'm gonna go do it and he's like okay and so i i i head over to the px and i, I talked to her entourage and explain who i am and what i'm trying to do and they take me up on it. And so I go back down and tell people in the unit that this is going to happen. And of course, nobody believed me. But lo and behold, they show up and I escort them in the motor pool. And I, I, I got pictures of this and I call Havel. And uh, he, I said, meet me, you know, down the motor pool, whatever the, the time was. And he meets me down there. And you know, I got her out on my tank. And the name of my tank was Ass Kicker. <laughs> Well, I got her draping over my, you know, ass kicker bore, ass kicker bore evacuator, uh, among other pictures and, you know, photos with me and Steve with, with this girl. And to, to kind of round out the story, his Christmas card that year, I'll, I'll try to be PC here. He had two pictures on it. One of him with the Playboy Playmate of the Year and the other with his dogs. And he said, uh, these are my two female dogs, uh, those weren't the words that he used, but <laughs> right. this is Christmas. Here. Yeah, his dog, uh, his, he got his dog in Korea, Blaze. Remember, he had this big, like, yep. this big dog, yep. Blaze. Yeah. Yep, Blaze was awesome. Yep. Blaze was a puppy, and Blaze was, like, shit all over the BOQ. I mean, everywhere. Like this, And this was not a small dog. Like, she's taking, like, <laughs> human-sized, like, craps all over the place. And, uh, yeah. oh, man, he was so funny. So funny. And then, and then, um, I just I was reminiscing because we talked about how we both knew Steve. So you are Steve's son's godfather, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lewis is the same. Yep. So you, Lewis is so he's named after you. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, Whoa, I, think I, mean, after, I think he's named after Lou Gehrig, actually. Oh, is yeah, he? Steve's a big guy See, play baseball player. Yeah, baseball play, play baseball at West Point and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steve's got a crazy Steve, story. Steve. From from grad week, and I'm I may butcher some of the details because it's been so long since I heard it. But um, apparently, one of his buddies from Kansas came out to watch him graduate, and they were like, you know, hammered the night before graduation. And um, Steve had a Porsche. Remember, Steve had a, he had a, like that red Porsche, I think. Yep, nine eleven turbo. Yeah. Yeah. So Steve had this Porsche, and they were way too drunk to drive. Of course, so it was just parked over behind the um the it was over by the by the cadet chapel and so the friend can't get back to the hotel maybe Santa Fe or something so the friend just says all right I'm going to climb in the back or 
is there a back of a 944? I don't know what there is, but the, he got in the car, fell asleep, and the car got towed away with his friend in the back, like drunk, passed out, <laughs> got towed away like the Poughkeepsie. So Steve goes up in the morning, graduation morning, his car's gone, his friend's gone. There's no cell phones back then. And uh, he can't figure out what the hell's going on. It almost like it was like some crazy commotion, but eventually he got his car back and his buddy was his buddy was fine. But sounded like a pretty crazy crazy night before graduation story. Yeah, all I heard about was how hungover he was the next day. Yeah, yeah. For graduation, yeah. We used to get so hammered in Korea because there's nothing else to do there. And we used to call it getting supersonic drunk. Like, you know, when you're really drunk, but then you're like even more drunk, like even, even more crazy. And, uh, we were, I remember we were, we were, we were doing something and this guy next to me had this, um, this like dining room set. His, his wife, so this, my fellow Lieutenant in the, he was an ROTC guy, got married and had his wife, living downrange in Korea, which was, like, against the rules or something. And they had this dining room set, like, like you know, plates and stuff like that. And and uh, somehow we got back to the BOQ, and we were, like, trying to get a glass of water or something, and he drops this glass accidentally, and it shatters on the ground. And we're both laughing, like, how funny that was, right? And then he takes another one, and he drops that one on the ground, and it shatters, right? Next thing you know, we take this entire, like... <laughs> all their plates, everything. And we just started throwing around the B- the BOQ, like just dest- like, I don't know what we were thinking. It was just so crazy and just destroyed everything. I mean, it was, you know, you buy it at the PX, it's probably like 40 bucks or something, but we bought them all new stuff after we had fun breaking it all. Crazy Steve Havel. <laughs> <laughs> nothing better to do. Oh my, there was nothing better to do except, you know, throwing, throwing uh, plates around and, and glasses in Korea. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so you got out after five years, and then you went right into corporate America, right? So you had your own transition as a junior military officer at that time, right? Actually, I used grad school. Yeah. Oh, um, you did. Okay. My yeah, my wife had matched at um, Indiana, and so that drove my grad school choice. That's where I got my MBA. Uh, two years, we actually lived together, and uh, from there, I started at Procter and Gamble. Uh, she stayed on to be a chief resident, and so we lived apart for yet another year, a uh, couple years at P&G, then GE, a couple different divisions, and then ultimately Deloitte, where I've been for 15 years now. So how was that when you show up as, like, you know, the, the new kid on the block, but yet you've got this five years of very significant management experience? Like, are you are you looked at as, like, like, like the odd man out, or did they, have they had enough veterans coming through there that they knew what your skills were? It wasn't so much veterans, uh, not that you could detect it anyway, but there was a fairly reasonable blend of folks that had been out in the corporate world for a while. So just age group-wise, um, you, you were able to blend in fairly well. And, you know, By then, I'd grown my hair out enough that I didn't stick out too poorly. Uh, you know, For me, it was a, I refer to grad school as my deprogramming period. I recognized, you know, one, I needed to upskill Two, I just needed the time to figure out how the other half lived and um, understand the culture and what the expectations were going on in the corporate world. So it, it was a good choice for me. Uh, it may not work for everyone. So 
then from there you went to several other big Fortune 500 companies. Like your your career has all has been all about big, uh, big corporate America, right? True, and somewhat opposite direction. Most folks that started large professional services firms, like who I'm with, tend to start there younger in their careers and then move on to other places. I kind of approached that in the inverse. Uh, so I started out Procter and Gamble very old school, you know, paternalistic consensus driven, uh, a very deep culture rooted around that promote from within, what have you. Uh, and then went from there to, to GE, um, was looking for a broader, more diverse experience and that I couldn't get at Proctor. Proctor's very siloed, not only by function, but even within each function. Um, and you know, I, I was sold on something else. And GE, Jack Welsh was still there at the time. They were hiring their last round of black belts. And I thought, boy, what a what better opportunity to get an operational education and a, a skill set that, that's applicable anywhere in an organization. So I, I jumped on that train, uh, jumped over to, to GE with their aircraft engines division, moved to Dallas, uh, punched that ticket, if you will. That's when 9-11 hit. And uh, you know what happened to that whole industry at that point in time. And that's what drove the move to their health care division up in Milwaukee. And uh, broad uh, operational experience there, overseeing manufacturing, all of our seven different X-ray product lines. And then subsequent to that, distribution of a bunch of their accessories. And that's when we had my oldest. And after a little while, there decided we wanted to get back home uh, that being cincinnati for both my wife and i to get around a support network and etc and so it was the first time that location drove the job choice we said we're going home we'll figure out the job so that's how it went so let's let's skip now to the subject matter of your book and how it interweaves with your career so you've had you transitioned from the military you also served in the reserves you have this Melo experience. So you have really been at that that sort of intersection of the civ-military divide and what it means to be bringing in uh, officers and uh, soldiers uh, into the corporate world. And so let's talk about the subject matter of your book, why you wrote it, um, and how you got to where you are. I think you had a forward that you wrote in the book, which you dedicated to a few people that, that we may know, right? <laughs> we'll say that. Well, first, let me just read the dedication of the book. And, and this is literally to all of you. I you know, consider it my love letter, if you will, to, to our class. And I'll, I'll read here verbatim the dedication of the book. Uh, to the members of the West Point class of 1991, my classmates, my brothers and sisters in arms, you inspired me to write this book. You inspire me every day with your outstanding achievements and incredible facets and all incredible efforts in all facets of life. I pray this work is worthy of our heritage and meets the ever-growing needs of the sons and daughters of this great nation we've all sworn to support and defend. So that's the dedication of course. I got chills, uh, man. I got chills. So literally, Joe, look at this. I got chills on my on my arms. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, any, <laughs> but chills. any book effort, as any author will tell you, was not done alone. And while in my acknowledgments, there are literally dozens of people. Let me just rattle off names of our classmates that contributed to this thing because uh, they all deserve credit. Uh, James Oval, Kevin Berry, uh, Toto, who's on the line, Joe Dazinski, Pete Fontana, 
uh, Andy Hall, Brian Hankinson, Greg Hardwick, Sal Herrera, Grant Heslin, Dan Hodney, Jeff Leroy, Norm Litterini, Doug McCormick is on the line, Brian Melton, Harris Morris, Jim Nugent, Ted Russ, Dave Tomasi, Martha Vandriel, Scott Williams. So that's about 20, a little over 20 names of classmates that directly contributed to this effort. I can't thank you all enough. And, and, you know, Kevin Barry is somebody that we're going to have on this podcast in another couple of weeks. He was, you know, I was texting back and forth to him, getting ready for his episode, which is going to maybe happen at the beginning of July. And um, he said, you know, you, he was forever grateful to your support in um, helping him with transition. So what specifically uh, does the book offer? What do you do? How do you help our, our brothers and sisters in arms that are making this transition? Yeah, so to your earlier point, yeah, all told, 20, including time at the academy, you know, 25 years in uniform of some sort, 20 years in the corporate world. Uh, so I, I think I bring a perspective on both sides of, of the transition that most authors, because there is a fair amount written out there on this topic, uh, but the, the, the perspective and, and the experience um, that I have and, and, and coaching others through this, I think, is one of the, the key differentiators. Uh, to, to your point, so it's it's the depth and breadth of, of content, and one of the key points is you know, transition is a process. I think of it as a multifactorial conundrum. Uh, it, it's tough. We've all gone through it, at least those of us that have gotten out. And uh, in, by my way of thinking, there's a systematic way that you approach this. Some of the steps are in series, some are in, in parallel, uh, but, but all of them, if approached diligently, and thoroughly will set you up, um, at least as I, I fashion it the book, to, to be much more successful uh, than just working through what you're served up coming out of the service today. One of the key differences uh, to the point of your question is focusing on who before what. And all of the programs coming out of the service today tend to focus on what before who, uh, studies have been done done on this that show you know if you take the what for who approach and just focus on you know the, the job market and resumes before you focus on your, yourself doing a self reflection figure out you know who you are and who you want to be you're only going to be successful about a quarter of the time whereas if you focus on yourself first uh, and do that hard work figuring out who you are and who you want to be as, as silly as this question sounds you're going to be successful 86% of the time. And, you know, I'm no genius, but if I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to put my money on the 86 versus 25. Yeah, we have a specific question from Sean Prickett. Uh, Sean Prickett was said, what do you think makes the most, makes most people happy following transition? Money, job, purpose, impact, amount of relaxation, time with family. Are there specific steps you have found that lead directly to the realization of these goals? Uh, well, again, steps, I'll, I'll fall back on, on the process that's, uh, for which I advocate in the book. In terms of what makes folks most happy, I mean, that's, that's, I've been asked this question on podcasts before, and man, that's unique to every person that gets asked the question. And my answer isn't necessarily going to match up for you and what your personal priorities are. What I will say is that, um, we coming out of the service, what, what makes transition incredibly difficult is 
in a word, culture, whether you're using grad school or some other vehicle as a means to, to make your way to the real world, or if you just transition directly there, you're going to simultaneously experience, you know, a couple dozen what I call cultural dimensions. It's been the last two chapters in the book focusing on this. Uh, you know, things like purpose. Uh, you've been in this mission first organization uh, for pretty much your entire adult life. And then suddenly it changes. Um, whether you're in a smaller or a larger civilian organization, it, it tends to involve money. Uh, leadership basis. You know, you've been working as part of a team. Now it, you could be part of the team or you might be more of an individual focus. And I could go on, but you know, organizational structure, power basis. Uh, onboarding, the way training gets administered, the way compensation benefits are administered, recognition rewards. I could go on and on and on, but all of these things are different, and it's all hitting you in the face simultaneously. And uh, until you know, I had some time to kind of tease out all those nuances, I didn't quite understand it when I was going through it. And folks that are going through it don't quite understand it unless they had the benefit of the book. <laughs> Man, uh, the, the, the reason, part of the reason why I wrote this thing is, you know, I, I wanted to write the book that I wish I would have had a year and a half to two years prior to getting out uh, for someone just to, to lay this out for me, how it works and how to kind of hack the system, if you will, to, to be a success on the other side. So that that's my great hope that that's what this ends up being uh, for the, the next generation and, and beyond. Yeah, what I just did in a reply to Sean's specific question, I, I reply with a link to your keynote sample from your webpage, which I think is very helpful because that has a big PDF that really describes in a PowerPoint uh, the kind of step-by-step that you, disc- that you outline further in the book. Uh, but I found that to be really fascinating, the kind of the analytics. You know, Clearly, you can tell that you have been spending a lot of time in consulting firms and you know, you, you like uh, I'm jealous of your ability to take a complex concept and break it down into like discernible chunks that you can kind of like really get your head around. So, you know, looking at the sort of step by step of, you know, not just transition, but also like breaking out the 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 analytics of like, you know, who's out there, where are the opportunities, where is there an overlap, what's the translation between military experience and, and civilian experience. You, you've got this one section where you've got the uh, almost like a glossary of terms like. You know, this equates to that. Um, I remember, I mean, it was, it was, you know, for me, you know, many years ago that I made the trans- that the my transition, but I, I still think, you know, there's this kind of like imposter syndrome or like this awkwardness. And I remember I was <clears throat> selling something and somebody asked me, um, you know, can I give you a PO? And I was like, what the hell is a PO? I, like, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> a purchase order. Yeah, but I didn't know. Like, I was like, yeah, P- like PO box? Like, like, what, like, like, what's a PO? Like, I was like, I don't, want, I don't look like a freaking idiot, you know? And I said, yeah. uh, let me just get back to you on that. You know, and I like look it up on, I uh, talked to somebody. I was like, it means purchase order, you dumbass. Like that's, that's, a PO is a purchase order. So good, good thing you didn't say RFQ. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't know any of that stuff, but like there's always lingo. Just like the military's got lingo. Civilian world has lingo too. So. Yeah. I mean, so flip that around. I mean, civilians, you as uh uh, transitioning military officer coming out. I mean, think of all the three-letter acronyms you use, and 
a good many kids coming out today still use those and expect that civilians who know nothing about the military understand that and they're utterly clueless and that's why you know it's it's emblematic of the divide and why employment of these folks continues to be difficult yeah well the one thing that i think to like to kind of like rest somewhat better about is that people are still people right and the one thing that our classmates these senior senior military officers have is tremendous leadership experience the tremendous ability to like manage complex tasks at a senior level and that's the real skill set that's the real thing that's being brought on but i i do recall in your book because uh, i i got an advanced copy you sent me the pdf and um there's there's a quote in there by um i think it's by uh uh scott williams i think who says like you've got it you've got to accept the fact that if you're a senior military officer you're going to take a pay cut going in the civilian world to get started, right? Is that is that your experience, Matt? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's for sure. And to the, the first point, there's absolutely a business case for veterans and what they bring to the party. I, I'm, I'm preaching the choir here, mm-hmm. but that's, and that's in the book as well. But to your point around Scott, yeah, absolutely. Then that was his experience coming out. I mean, part of the reason for that, uh, you know, through – uh, the, the Great Recession beyond, there was probably a good 10-year period where, you, you know, those in the military continued to realize their annual 2 to 3% bump, if not more, um, it, it, given what's going on in OIF and OEF. Uh, whereas in the civilian world, you were relatively flat for that period of time. So, you know, at the upper echelon in the military, coming out, you, you may very well uh, experience a bit of a haircut. Yeah, I remember the, the term flat was the new up, right? Back in 2008, yeah. <laughs> 9, 10. Flat is the new up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that may be part of it. Part of it's just, there's also just this sort of like um, this train up period where you've got to, you know, kind of synchronize to the to the specific, you know, uh, kind of battle rhythm of, of the civilian world. But then from, from there on out, like, you know, people kick ass and take names or just, you know, far more. Uh, you know, far more skilled at, at leadership and, and I think add a lot more value to the sector. Yeah, no, that's part of it too. I mean, I, I got that a little bit even coming into to Deloitte because I was this experienced hire, as they would uh, call it. And what I negotiated, you know, normally I would have come in at, at call it the, the manager level, you know, back in the day. Um, but I didn't have direct consulting experience, so that was their justification for bringing me in at, at a lower level. Uh, but I negotiated as, as part of that. You know, look, if I knock every project out of the park uh, within the first year, they'd promote me uh, the, the next year. So that got me almost a, a double bump, if you will, going into the, the next year. My, my point is, even though your landing spot may – involve a bit of a haircut you can very quickly overcome it if you just get in there and start killing it what about the whole thing about purpose and uh you know going from you know being on the frontier of freedom and and you know playing this pivotal role in the defense of our country and and stability of 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 the world to then you know being in this you know um arguably more mundane role of day-to-day business Matt, your 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 headset's going nuts right now. Sorry, dude. 
That's awesome. You know, I think about, I think about where our class is, you know, like we've got several, we've got several people that are transitioning, you know, having had like these, you know, 28 years stellar 
military careers. We got some people that are going to be staying in the military another, you know, for, for another five to ten more years, and uh, as general officers or or as you know, uh, in special roles as O uh, sixes. Uh, but then we have a lot of like civilians, like like me and you, that are like you know in corporate America, you know, connected through investments or you know roles, and so. You know, our ability to network with each other and play this role, not, not just as support for each other as a class, but just creating this, you know, this network effect um, to serve, to continue to serve the country and to, you know, be this kind of translational partner between the civil military, you know, divide would be would be a great thing for us to, to be able to do. And, you know, I'll tell you just one quick thing from from my perspective, too. I mean. You know, I worked for, you know, a number of years in my own business. I, I was, you know, I'm in that like little 3% tranche, the entrepreneur tranche. I, you know, in one part of your book, you kind of break out like where, where veterans go and 3% of them end up in this in this role that I was in. And and it was a great, rewarding um, uh, career. And uh, but, you know, then I, I felt like something was missing. Like I always felt this, this need to serve and to give more. And I felt like I got out of the military too soon and I felt guilty about that. And so... You know, moving into nonprofit was part of my trajectory back into service, and so nonprofit's another wonderful place to be able to continue to give back and to serve. And but you know, I made an unexpected realization, having now been doing this for five years, which is the realization of how unbelievably important the for-profit world is to everything else. And so, you know, I work in communities of concentrated poverty where there is lack of opportunity, and I see you know, this kind of generational effect where, where, you know, people are just not given opportunity to kind of move upward out of just, you know, uh, poverty. And, uh, and I, and I realized that how important, you know, the economic engine is to everything else. And so, you know, at the very, very top, tippy top of the food chain, you know, is people taking risks, making money, managing people, building value, um, if there's not that, there's nothing. There's no nonprofit. There's no. There's no for-profit. There's no government. There's no military. I mean, that is the real important sort of uh, basic foundational value proposition of our country. And so, knowing that veterans are going into that space and they're leading, and our classmates are going to be moving into that space, I mean, they should feel very proud of the fact that this is like a fundamental part of the stability of our country. And so my little public service announcement, but, you know, don't feel like, you know, if you are no longer, you know, commanding a brigade or, or, you know, moving, um, you know, uh, leading the sons and daughters of America, you know, in wartime, that you're, uh, can have any less of an impact because you certainly can to our transitioning uh, brothers and sisters. Absolutely. And, and beyond uh, the, the, the deck that you point out on my website, I'll also point them to my resources. Uh, I ran into a word count issue with a publisher. Uh, so there's about 25,000 uh, free words worth of content on my resources site. Uh, I had a 70,000 word count. So check out the resources tab on MatthewJLewis.com. Uh, there's, there's lots of content there to help you out if you're in the process of transitioning. Yeah, it's an it's an awesome website and just uh, the slide deck and the kind of walking through the process. I think it's it's helpful for anybody, even those of us that have been out of the out of the military and and uh, it's just uh, you know 
it's it's just a great way to kind of think about uh, our role in society. Um, Matt, I'll give you the last word. Any any closing comments or thoughts uh, to leave our classmates with? Yeah, let me just kind of build on the, your public service announcement. And, uh, you know, this is probably more for those that might listen to this as a recorded matter. But, you know, as a, a, a closing thought to kind of an oral history here, which is part of what this is, let me just leave you with a couple of thoughts. And, you know, I, I think all of us have been given a couple of great gifts um, in our lives here that we've graduated from the greatest leadership development institution on the planet. At least I would consider it. And that's the first gift. The second gift is each other. And, you know, thanks for dialing in tonight. But as a result of graduating, we're a lifetime member of one of the greatest networks in the world. Uh, frankly, I call it one of my lifetime lotteries, uh, you know, including marrying my wife and having my kids. But th- that, that these gifts come with an obligation, not just an active duty service obligation. And, you know, you may recall a line, the West Point mission statement to the effect of to inspire its graduates to a lifetime of service to the nation. It, it took me some time to buy into that. You know, my early cadet experience certainly didn't support that view, but my Army experience certainly did. Uh, leaving active duty, even though I was just a, a five-year guy, was one of the harder decisions I've had to make. What I've come to understand and accept is that service doesn't end when you take off your uniform. So even though you may have spent 25, 30 years serving, there, there's still opportunities. And you know, I'm just trying to do my part here, just like all of you. Um, my ask would be, if you haven't considered this, please reflect upon these gifts and all they've done for you and give back in some way. And it, it, it need not be money. Give your time. Lend your experience, your perspective, your connections. You know, help, help those that are falling behind us. Help me close the nationwide gap for transitioning veterans. You know, host a local happy hour like Norm Litterini does in the D.C. area. Uh, educate high school guidance counselors on service academies as a collegiate option. Offer to speak at civic, civic events in your local community. Shine a light on your service via your experience and the opportunities that service provides. Uh, as Jamie said, the, the nonprofit space, tons of opportunities there. The options are endless. I just ask that you be open to letting good go around. And, and as I tell veterans in my book, you know, everyone Everyone in the class of 91 has so much to offer, and the country needs you. Uh, so uh, please step up, do your part as you can, and uh, I know you won't disappoint. And, and make a small financial donation to the class gift, which is what really got this whole thing going, <laughs> which is class of 91 gift. So do that too. $19.91 is also cool. Just go to that, you know, get www. Westpointaog.org slash give to 91. That's all you need to do. So um, thank you for listening, everybody. Matt, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful book, this uh, amazing contribution to not just our class, but our country and to our transitioning uh, soldiers and officers. And uh, thanks for everything. And duty shall be done. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.